Welcome again to Grace Church of Philly, and we also welcome those that are watching from different places in the world, especially our friends in Africa, in Cameroon, and those in Dominican and Puerto Rico, and our church family that is in Philly, uh, many of them still at home, but we welcome you to worship today. Take your Bible with me once again and look in Hebrews chapter 1, or your bulletin, in which you will find the text in three languages. Hebrews chapter 1, I remind you I'm at the beginning of a series on portraits of Christ in Hebrews, and uh, we will look at at least seven portraits of Christ in Hebrews. I began last week with Jesus as the final word, and I didn't finish that message, so I will finish it this morning. Why are we looking at portraits of Christ? Because we are to love him with all of our heart and mind and soul and strength. And the more you know him, I guarantee you will love him more because he is that attractive. He is worthy of our deepest love. I'm going to read the entire text again this morning, though I'll only be dealing with a latter portion of it. Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe. You will roll them up like a garment. They will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet?' 
Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Last week, I wanted to try to show the importance of this text as Jesus, the final word. That is, its importance in evangelism or in what we would call apologetics which is always a part of evangelism, setting forth the defense of the truth of the Word of God. And I focus on this question when we are talking to people about truth. Upon whose words are you building your life both now and for eternity? On Wednesday night, we uh, take time with a group of people on Zoom to discuss the prior Sunday's sermon, and we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, whether or not this is a good question. You know, do people really reflect on whose words they are building their life on? And I think we concluded that for the most part, it's a probing question to people because people don't think about it. They just hear, they believe, uh, but they, they don't really think about whose life, whose words am I building my life on both now and for eternity. But it's a necessary question because everyone is listening to some voice. Everyone is building their life, looking for direction and hope in life by listening to someone. Now, it could be many different voices. You know, the voice may be, and it often is, the voice of your own heart and your own mind. Which, if that's true, you know, people say, well, follow your heart. Well, if, if it's a heart that has not been transformed by grace, if it's a heart that is not surrendered to the Lordship of Christ, if it's a heart that is not saturated by the Word of God, then when you listen to your heart, you're listening to something that the Bible says is deceitful and desperately wicked. When Paul talked about the, uh, the heart and mind of of unbelievers, he said, their, their understanding is darkened. Now, you don't want to listen to your heart unless your heart is under the lordship of Christ and saturated by the word of God, and yet people follow their heart. Sometimes the voices we're listening to are, are just the voices of the age in which we live. 
It may be the voice of reason or the voice of science or the voice of feminism or chauvinism or the voice of some particular political or social movement. It may be the many different voices of postmodernism or secularism. But when you allow any voice of the age to drown out the voice of Jesus Christ, you are on a journey that may seem right, but the Bible says there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end of it is destruction. Because the psalmist reminds us that the only life that is blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. But if it's not the voice of my heart or the voice of the age in which I'm living, it could be the voice of religion, maybe the voice of morality, which on the surface seems to be believable, promising life, promising heaven perhaps, promising health or wealth or peace or prosperity. But Paul reminds us that often behind the voice of religion and the voice of morality is the voice of Satan himself. When he addresses those in the first century who bring a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says such men are false apostles. They are deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And he says it's no wonder for even Satan himself disguises himself as an angel of light. That's right, he could have a very joyful face. He might have a collar on. He may look holy and attractive. But he says, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. And so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. There are many voices that we can listen to in this world, but our text is reminding us that God has spoken finally and fully through his son, Jesus Christ. And it's his voice that needs to drown out all other voices. And it's his voice by which we examine every other voice in this world, every other claim to truth. Last week, we saw that we listened to this voice of Jesus through whom God is speaking for a couple of reasons. We saw that Christ, God, has this history of reliability. God has been speaking, and he continues speaking, and his word has coherence. His word has unity. God has been around for a long time, and we know that he tells the truth. He is the only one who speaks who has never lied. The only one. I have lied. 
And you should examine every word that I speak because I have capacity to lie. And so you take what I say and examine it by the word of God and you hold the word of God always above the words of John or anybody else. God is a history of reliability. He cannot lie. We also see this morning, not only does he have a history of reliability, and as we saw last week, he has the character of someone whom can be trusted. He is this unique one that's appointed heir of all things. He's your creator, your God. He sustains the world you live in. He is your priest who died in your place. He is your king, seated at the right hand of God. He has a character that says, you can believe Jesus. But another question we should ask when we're thinking about whose words am I building my life on is this, how does he compare to others? Of course, the writers just told us in a very descriptive way, six, seven different ways of of how marvelous Jesus Christ is. But now he's going to tell us that Jesus is better, or as the newer translations say, he is superior And in verse 4, we find the first of 13 times in Hebrews when the writer will tell us Jesus is superior because he wants us to think about who holds the highest place of esteem in my life. I think I may have mentioned that one time coming back from Cameroon, I sat with a number of men uh, in the waiting room at the airport and engaged them in conversation about where they were spiritually. And, you know, they, they claimed that they were believers, that they were Christians. You know, they believed in Jesus. But the more that I talked with them, I realized that though they, you know, accepted the Bible in some measure... The words of their ancestors, of their mothers and their fathers and their uncles and their grandparents, the words of their ancestors were more binding and more powerful than the words that God himself has spoken. So even though you may say, well, I believe the Bible is God's word, when it comes to how you live your life day in and day out, Who holds the place of highest esteem in your life so that their words are influencing your values, your beliefs, your actions? And we know in the world in which we live, it can be any number of people. It can be politicians, you know, entertainers, scientists, philosophers, family, friends, self-help gurus, psychologists, there are any number of opportunities to hear voices that will tell you this is how you get the life that you want. But I confess, the longer I am a Christian, the longer I follow Jesus Christ, the less I am enamored with any earthly allegiance. I am not a good follower of anything or anyone except I try to be a good follower 
of Jesus Christ. As I said last week, I am a skeptic. I am always asking, why do you believe that? All right, so you made that claim. Who said it and who are they? And why should I believe that? Where did you get that information? Why are you staking your life on it? Why is it making you miserable or making you happy? I'm just not a, I'm not a good fan. I love football. I always have a football in my car, and I'm ready to throw a football anytime somebody wants to have a catch. I love football. But I'm not a good fan. Even when the Eagles were winning, I didn't give them much attention, and certainly this year they wouldn't have gotten any attention. But the truth is, I haven't watched football at all this year because it's become so politicized. I like football, not a forum for social issues and politics. But I'm not a good follower anyway. I'm an Eagle fan. Now I don't wear their shirts. But my face mask does say, Jesus saves. I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I have no favorite preachers, though I have some that I trust more than others, but there are none that I must hear or I must believe every word they say. I have found and I am continually, continually finding even more something in Jesus Christ to which nothing, no one in this world compares. Our writer is asserting he is better. Later he'll tell us he's better than Moses, he's better than the priests, he's better than the whole sacrificial system. Here he's going to tell us he's better than the angels. Now, that's not important to you because angels don't mean a whole lot to you, but in the ancient world, and especially in the Jewish world, angels held a place of exaltation and even among some sects of Jews, like the Essenes, they held a place of worship. Because there are a number of texts in the Bible that indicate that when God gave the law to his people, that somehow the angels had a role in mediating and bringing that law. We're not exactly uh, how and that that took place because Exodus doesn't reveal that. But there are other places in the Old Testament that, that show this exalted role of angels. And of course, we see that role in Daniel, and we see angelic appearances coming to men. And certainly in the New Testament, we see angels coming to Mary and coming to Joseph and ministering to, 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 to Jesus Christ. Angels held a place of elevation in the minds of first century Jews, and many of these to whom he's writing are, are Jewish converts. But the writer's reminding them angels are servants. They're servants who brought the law, while Jesus Christ is the one to whom the law pointed. He is the Savior and the Lord. Angels brought the law which exposes sin. But Jesus is the one who expunges, who removes, who forgives and cleanses sin. 
however great the role of angels might have been, the, the, the author is simply arguing Jesus Christ is better. He is superior. And if angels in the first century held that place of exaltation above men, above any human being, and if Jesus Christ is better than the angels, then why not listen to Jesus Christ? I think it's good to remember when the author is making this comparison between angels and Jesus, when he says that Jesus has inherited a more excellent name, or he has become more superior, better, that he's, he's talking about Jesus not as the eternal Son of God, but he's talking about Jesus as the incarnate Son of God. He's talking about Jesus, the perfect man, the second Adam, the Messiah. Because as the eternal Son of God, Jesus doesn't become anything. There is nothing about his nature or his being that changed at all. But when it comes to his being a man... He receives a name that is superior. Now, what is that name? The writer of Hebrews doesn't tell us. The context might indicate it's simply that he is called Son. But unto the Son, he says. He speaks to the Son. This day have I begotten you. So it could be Son. Now, we know that in the Old Testament, Angels were sometimes called sons of God, but always in plural. By sons of God, the writers meant they had their origin in God, you know, they, 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 they derived from God. But no angel, no individual angel was called the son of God. Only Jesus has that designation. So perhaps he's indicating that this is the name that's superior. He alone is Son, as John says, the only begotten, the unique Son of God. Or it can be just the name Jesus. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, Yahweh, saves. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He has a name that is above every man. He every name. He is the perfect man who comes to give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. His name is superior. And then he digs back into the Old Testament and he amasses seven quotations from the Old Testament, all of which he uses to show the superiority of Jesus Christ over angels. And what's striking about the way he does that, you know, normally in the Bible when you're reading an Old Testament quotation, it's preceded by, it is written. It is written. It is written. But in Hebrews chapter 1, 
the writer, instead of saying, it is written, he says, God says that God is speaking. And in the writer's mind, God is still speaking. He's not only giving authority to the Old Testament, saying that, you know, the, when you read the Old Testament, it's not just it is written, but it is God speaking in the Old Testament. And the way he writes it, God is still speaking in the Old Testament. People say, well, I'm a New Testament Christian. Well, the Old Testament is your Bible too. And God speaks to it. He speaks in the Old Testament to point you to the coming sufficiency of, and superiority of Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, he brings us to the fulfillment of all of that promise that the superior and sufficient Jesus Christ will come. But he argues no angel was ever addressed as son. Angels don't rival the son. There's no competition between Jesus and angels. They worship him. And the implication is if angels who are held in such high esteem in your minds worship Jesus Christ, then why don't you? Angels serve, whereas Christ reigns on a throne as one who is equal with God. I love this text when I'm talking to Jehovah Witnesses who don't want to believe that Jesus is God. But it so clearly says in verse 8, but unto the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. He declares that angels are simply created beings whereas the Son is an eternal being. Everything will, that is created has its limits. It will, the, the entire universe will fold up like a garment, but the Son remains. And yes, angels have a special responsibility. In some way, he says, they serve the redeemed, those who will inherit salvation, which some take to mean that they have a work prior to salvation. I take it to mean that they are ministering in some way to the lives of believers until they experience that final consummate salvation that will come when Jesus comes. But their role is to serve the redeemed while Jesus' role is to redeem sinners. So when I read these, these arguments that Jesus Christ is superior and because of that we, we ought to listen to him, it raises for me a, a couple of questions of maybe even ironies in, in application. So when I am listening to and believing others other than Jesus with some kind of a religious loyalty, have I not become then an, an, an idolater 
giving worship to false gods is not following someone other than Jesus an act of idolatry. And you say, well, I would never do that. But think about the world in which we live and even more so the country in which we live, which is at war over ideologies. By by ideology, I simply mean a set of ideas that affect the way you look at the world and you live your life. You build on ideas. And as I said earlier, it may be things like conservatism or liberalism or socialism or capitalism or nationalism or racism or populism or feminism or environmentalism or Marxism and, you know, the isms go on and on and on. I like the title of one article that was recently published well, about 10 years ago, in the uh, Journal of Politics. It was entitled, Nauseating Displays of Loyalty. And the subtitle was, Monitoring the Factional Bargain Through Ideological Campaigns in China. And what the author is discussing, what he finds nauseating, is the blind, religious-type loyalty that people give to charismatic and powerful leaders and how these leaders use that to their advantage. He says it's nauseating. And when I read portions of that article, I began to realize that this is not a China problem. It's a human problem that whenever somebody rejects the full authority of God's word by which we examine all other words, we easily become worshipers of the ideologies of men. But if you're a Christian, if you are serious about following Jesus Christ, you can never become a blind, loyal adherent of any ideological movement in the world. Not one. I hesitate in saying, even as a Christian, when somebody says, are you a Calvinist? Or are you Arminian? Are you a fundamentalist? Are you a... Because I realize that any label, any ideology, any movement is man-made. So if I say, yes, I'm a Republican. Well, there's much of being a Republican I don't want to identify with. I sympathize with some Republican ideas. I'm a Democrat. Well, believe it or not, I sympathize with some Democrat ideas. But both Republicans and Democrats, both liberals and conservatives, 
both feminists and chauvinists, are capable of lying, are capable of being wrong, and the fact is they are all wrong in some way. So I am really nothing but a follower of Jesus Christ, and I'm an eclectic, that is, I pick and choose from the ideologies of the world and examine them by the Word of God, and I take what is consistent with the Word of God or someone would say, I eat the corn and I throw away the husk. So along with that first irony is that we become idolaters when we are becoming such avid adherents of any movement apart from Jesus Christ. The second irony is that The reason that happens is that even though we say we are Christians, our lives are really not rooted in the worship of Jesus Christ as Lord. We really don't believe, that is, we don't value, we may confess intellectually that Jesus is Lord, but it's not a value that captures our lives, that affects the way we think. We really don't worship Jesus as Lord. We don't believe that he's better, that his words are better, that the way he wants us to live is superior. It's amazing how in Christianity today, how ideological wars have divided good Christians who, who say they love Jesus, but who are divided because the words of men have become more supreme in their thinking than the words of Jesus Christ. Because the truth is that even a Christian who says, I have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, may not be listening to the voice of Jesus. Because deep down inside, they they may believe that in order to secure their happiness or their desired way of life, it cannot be the Jesus way. And that's not a 21st century problem because that's one of the problems, the situations that the writer of Hebrews was addressing when he writes this epistle. It's becoming uncomfortable in the first century to be a follower of Christ. And where Judaism was still protected under the Roman law, there apparently were believers, professed believers, who are drifting away from Christianity, going back into Judaism because it was politically correct, it was acceptable, it was comfortable. And tragically, as the world in which we're living changes, more and more we will see Christians drifting away. Because the words of Jesus do not appear to be as safe 
as some of the ideologies capturing the society in which we live. And so Christians will, as they have been for years in many places in the world, Christians will have to make a choice. Will they suffer for the words of Jesus or will they find a temporary safe haven in the current ideas of the world? Thankfully, when you go on and read in the book of Hebrews, especially in Hebrews chapter 10, you will find that there were many Christians who faced that predicament in their life, and they said, we are willing to be reproached, and we're willing to suffer affliction, and we're willing even to lose our jobs and lose our homes, but we believe that Jesus is Lord, and his words are words above all other words. We will follow Jesus. And the writer tells them, don't throw away your confidence because it has great reward. You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while and the coming one will come and he will not delay but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Jesus is superior. And if you believe that, it will cost you in this world. But great is your reward in heaven, Jesus said, when you are persecuted for my namesake. Let me close. This is my conclusion. It's not a short conclusion, but it is my conclusion. It's the fourth question. When we think about whose words are we building our life and eternity on, the fourth question we should be asking is, what are the consequences of not listening? So if you don't listen to Bill Gates, if you don't listen to Donald Trump, if you don't listen to Joe Biden, if you don't listen to the voices of our age, what are the consequences of not listening? When we read verses 1 through 4 of chapter 2, we find the first of many warnings in the book of Hebrews. And he argues we must pay closer attention to what we have heard. The angels brought the law. The law exposed sin. And if you broke that law, you faced God's judgment. That was severe. But Jesus brings salvation. And if you reject Jesus, then the judgment is even more severe. It is eternal. Pay careful attention. Why? Because drifting is possible. As it was in the first century, as it is happening in our world today, drifting is possible. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way when he talked about those who drift away from Christianity. He said, if you examined a hundred people who had lost their faith in Christianity, I wonder how many of them would turn out to have been reasoned out of it by an honest argument. He then asked, do not most people simply drift away? He says, it's not because somebody came along with a better voice and better words and better promise than Jesus Christ. Christians aren't reasoned out of belief in the superiority of Jesus Christ. There's something else happening that causes them to drift away. He doesn't say it, but in my experience, most of, most of the time it is a a, a moral issue of some kind. Because when I choose a life that is contrary to the life that Jesus wants for me, then it's painful to keep believing in Jesus Christ. So I want to find another voice that will affirm my choice to pursue what I think will bring me happiness. It it happens. It's a fitting metaphor for what can easily happen in any of our lives when we do not hold Jesus Christ to be superior. Why pay care, careful attention? Because of everything he has just said about the superiority of Jesus Christ. Why pay careful attention? Because he asks the question, how shall we escape? And the answer is implied, you won't escape. We can't escape. If Christ is everything that he has declared him to be in chapter 1, if he is the Savior and judge of all men, if in him alone is salvation, if we neglect him, how shall we escape? And he says, we can't, you can't. If you're not in Christ, you're not simply sitting on a ledge ready to fall into an eternal hell. If you are not in Christ, you are already plummeting at warp speed to eternal damnation. You are on your way quickly to hell unless Jesus saves you. And if he doesn't save you, if you don't repent and turn to him today, you cannot escape because there is only one great salvation. It is in Jesus. It was attested by God. It was attested by the apostolic miracles. God demonstrated in multiple ways and in the supreme way of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. Listen to him. It would be great if there were a set of 
noise-canceling headphones you could get on Amazon that you could just put on, living in a world of many voices and only hear the voice of Jesus. But there are no noise-canceling headphones. The voices are coming from everywhere. They're coming loudly, and it takes the discipline of faith. We must pay more careful attention that we are hearing the words of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, again, we thank you that you are the living God and the talking God that you have spoken, you have finally spoken in Christ, and in your word we hear your living voice giving us hope and direction in life. I pray for those this morning that are listening to voices that will lead to their despair and their destruction. May they hear you through your spirit, speaking through your word to their heart today. You want them to be made alive. You want them to hear the words of life that Jesus speaks. May that happen as some repent and come to Christ today, in whose name we pray, amen.